a park or something deer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start up with some talking and some moody flips and popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation, kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on, contest and of course you know it's all about games. I said slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today is mostly a mailbag episode, but before we get to the mailbag, I am going to talk about a couple things. This is episode 454. Um, So should I talk about the 454 Casul? Magnum 45 cartridge for revolvers? You've seen it in movies like Armed and Dangerous. John Candy identifies his revolver as a 50 caliber in Armed and Dangerous, but he's actually using a Freedom Arms 454. Uh, Alien Nation, we see James Caan get a 454 because he wants a bigger gun. We see it in another 48 hours. Um, we also see it, of course, in Point Break and in Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, although that's, you know, the one Mickey Rourke brings at the end of, for the gunfight at the end. He says is a Ruger Blackhawk converted to 454. But no, we're not going to talk about the 454 Gasol revolver cartridge. We are going to talk about some recent games I've been in. My plans for 2023. We're going to talk about Double O agents and are they lawful evil? Because you'll re- you'll frequently hear people talk about, well, James Bond is would be lawful evil in AD and D. Is that the case? I don't know. And then I'll open up the mailbag. Recent games. I got to run Barbarians Lemuria the other night for some new folks, which is great. I always love introducing that game to new people. Uh, it's just a, a fun game, and the freeform magic system is great. The mechanics really get out of the way and just let you dive into that sword sorcerer world. Um, I think everybody had a good time. I was a little punch drunk tired, so that probably didn't help the game any, but all in all, I think it went well. The other game I've gotten to play recently online was another session of Wrath of the Righteous, a Pathfinder 1E game that Joe Richter of Hindsightless runs. Still having a lot of fun in that game. We're plotting through. We're almost done with book two of that. We've been at it for, what, a year now. and So that's been a really long-term campaign, but that's been a lot of fun. We've also joined uh, In Guard game. In Guard, of course, 1975 game where you're kind of like musketeers. And it's designed and works really well. Is a play-by-mail game. We're doing it play-by-post on an internet forum, but you you basically come up with your orders for the month, for the four weeks of the month, and you submit them, and there are different things you can do. Um, I'll talk about that in a future episode, because I, I do have a lot of calls here. But um, and In fact, I'll talk about all my gaming stuff in a future episode. Maybe, why don't we do that? As far as plans for 2023, I'm considering scaling the, the show back to just a, a Wednesday episode and the System Sunday episode. I'm open to suggestions on that. I, I don't want to inundate people with too much content. I could, you know, I've been doing Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. 
you know, and trying to keep Tuesday and Thursday at 30 minutes each. So would you rather have one Wednesday episode that's 30 to 45 minutes or would you rather have a, you know, 30 minute or less Tuesday and Thursday episode? If you have preference in there, let me know. No promises. So with that said, let's talk about, uh, well, the other thing, of course, we're going to keep doing contests and I'll keep doing all the different things. I don't, I'll probably start a contest here next week, and it'll go into early February. Um, still nailing down specifics on what I'm going to do with that, and that's the contest where I'll offer zines and various things to everybody in the world. So kind of copying off what Ray Otis did at the end of last year over on Plundergrounds. So watch for that. Okay, let's get into this question of D&D alignments in spies. So you're wondering about the title of the episode. You're wondering if James Bond is lawful evil. So let's have a discussion about double O agents and James Bond, and then I'm going to elicit your input here. This whole discussion is brought up by a comment you're going to hear later on in a call from M.W. Lewis from the Worlds of M.W. Lewis podcast. Let me play that snippet. Uh, and that's how spies are, too. And they're not evil. Now, are all spies evil? No, of course not. Were the the occupants of Robert Redford's cell there in Three Days of the Condor, the movie that comes from the book Six Days of the Condor? You know, were those agents, those code breakers, things like that, are they automatically evil? I don't think so. And I don't know that anybody's really arguing that. But when we get into things like James Bond, who are double O agents who are out there, and I realize he's fictional, but the idea of these assassins and people that do direct action against other human beings, does that make them evil? So this often comes up because in a piece, not in a core rulebook for AD&D, but in a piece probably in Dragon Magazine, I haven't actually read it, but my understanding is Roger Moore, no, not the actor, but the RPG author, compared James Bond and assassins somewhere. And it's not in errata to my knowledge. It's just a comment he made probably in an article somewhere. So are assassins evil? Well, and, and I don't buy the comparison of James Bond to assassins, but I'll loop around back to that in a minute. So when we look in the AD&D First Edition Player's Handbook, we see assassins are evil in alignment. Preforce is the killing of humans and other intelligent life forms for the purpose of profit is basically held to be the antithesis, antithesis of wheel. Now, what do they mean by wheel? Well, when we look at the definition, you know, wheel's generally used as the idea of the general good, the common good, the public wheel, the, the common wheel, common wheel, common wealth. Um, so the idea here is the general good. Now, just because you're paid to kill another sentient being, does that automatically mean it's against the public good? Is that the case for the hangman or the king's executioner? Not necessarily. But if you're paid to kill random people for, for money, then yeah, you're, that's probably not in the public good. So let's look at the definitions of, and I'm not arguing that assassins in AD&D and paid hitmen, because I think mobs, mobsters and paid hitmen are a closer thing to assassins in AD&D than James Bond is, agent of the state. But let's look in here and see what we have for lawful evil. Let's look at these definitions. 
and let's see what works best for our, our MI6 agent. So we have lawful evil. Creatures of this alignment are general respecters of laws and strict order, but life, beauty, truth, and freedom and the like are held as valueless and least scorned. By adhering to strict discipline, or stringent discipline, those of lawful evil alignment hope to impose their yoke on the world. That's in the player's handbook. Now let's go to the Dungeon Master's handbook. We get, obviously all order is not good, nor are all laws beneficial. Lawful evil creatures consider order as a means by which each group is properly placed in the chaos, from the lowest to the highest, strongest first, weakest last. Good is seen as an excuse to promote the mediocrity of the whole and suppress the better and more capable while lawful evilness allows each group to structure itself and fix its place as compared to others, serving the stronger but being served by the weaker. So here we have your communist Russia, we have your Nazi Germany, we you know, things like that. Um, what about lawful neutral? Well, so we go to lawful neutral and we see that we have in the player's handbook, those of this alignment view regulation as all-important taking a middle road betwixt evil and good. This is because the ultimate harmony of the world and the whole of the universe is considered by lawful neutral creatures to have its sole hope rest on law and order. Evil or good are immaterial beside the determined purpose of bringing all to predictability and regulation. We go to the DMG. It is the view of this alignment that law and order give purpose and meaning to everything without regimentation and strict definition there would be no purpose in the cosmos. Therefore, whether a law is good or evil is of no import as long as it brings order and meaning. Are double O agents lawful neutral? No, they're serving a, a specific side. They're not just serving the law. They're serving their country. What, what do we have for the lawful good? While as strict in their prosecution of law and order, characters of lawful good alignment follow these precepts to improve the common weal. There's that word again. Certain freedoms must, of course, be sacrificed in order to bring order. But truth is of the highest value and life and beauty of great importance. The benefits of society are to be brought to all. Okay. DMG. Characters of lawful good alignment view the cosmos with varying degrees of lawfulness or desire for good. They are convinced that order and law are absolute necessary to assure good and that Good is best defined as whatever brings the most benefit to the greater number of decent thinking creatures and the least woe to the rest. Well, it sounds like you're MI6 agents working for a, a free England, and you can argue how free England is, but th they probably, of these different alignments, fall in lawful good more than anything, at least your ones that aren't crooked. Yeah, And so if we're going to go by that route, and I think that's... The way to go, the James, James Bond is arguably lawful good. He's following the, the laws and structures given to him. And, and arguably, maybe he doesn't always follow the law because he'll go rogue here and there. But for the most part, he is doing what's best for his country and best for the free West, you know, when he's going against the Soviet Union, which is more happens more in the books than it does in the movies. Um, so let's talk about double O agents for a minute. Double O agents. In in the books, by the way, it is O O, zero not zero zero, but the letter O O. Um, and so you know, determined different ways in different books, but 
effectively when we're first introduced to it in the first novel, Casino Royale, the OO concept, it means that you've had to kill a chap in cold blood in the course of some assignment. So it specifically is not self-defense or offensive action as far as like shooting an enemy soldier, which makes sense because most MI6 agents in Bond's time were all World War II vets like Bond was. But, you know, the idea is to kill somebody in cold blood. And that's interesting. So they're, they're but they're doing it. So it's, it's an assassination. So the OO designation is an assassination for your country, but it's not just for general money and killing anybody, like we see with Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun. We'll come back to that in a second, too. How many double O agents are there? Well, in the books, there's at least 11 we know of, because um, there's a 0011. So it's not just limited to 10 agents or whatever, like maybe the movies have you believe. Um, so let's, let's talk about the Man with the Golden Gun. This was Ian Fleming's last novel. He died before it was published. It, he did not get to go over it again himself. It, the finished editing was done by somebody else. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, it, it's kind of looked as a, as a lesser work and not as good. And a lot of times during that second pass is when Fleming added a lot of flourishes and a lot of detail. And because he didn't get to do that second pass, The Man with the Golden Gun is not considered to be one of his better novels because it's missing a lot of the details he would have added. But in this, um, Bond goes against Francisco Scaramanga, a, a Cuban assassin who uses a gold Colt 45, a cowboy revolver. And it, it's interesting because this novel does, we talk about, we talked about last month, is James Bond really a spy or not? Is he really, is it really espionage? Or is he just, you know, a, a cop? going after terrorists. Well, in this novel, you know, when you look at the plans of the bad guys here, they are, and so spoilers for the plot of The Man with the Golden Gun, a, you know, book from 1965 that most people probably aren't going to read. Um, but the the plot here is, is interesting because the, the plan here is Scaramanga works with the KGB. And the KGB and Scaramanga are making plans, and, and they're also working with some gangsters, some American gangsters. And the, the intent is to destabilize Western interests in the Caribbean sugar industry. So, and that's going to increase the value of the Cuban sugar cops, sugar crop. It, it's going to, and, and then they're also running drugs in America, smuggling prostitutes from Mexico and America. They're operating casinos in Jamaica, causing friction between tourists, local people. They're, they're doing different things, but it is espionage, and they are trying to destabilize the West in, in their things. So this, this actually is, what he's doing is espionage-related, which is kind of interesting. The other interesting thing here is that when we look at how the man with the golden gun ends, you know, to be a OO agent, you need to have that ability to kill in cold blood, right? And at the end of this, Bond's downfall is that he does not kill in cold blood, but Scaramanga tricks him, appealing to his British sense of morality and allowing him to recite a final prayer, which Scaramanga takes that opportunity to pull out a golden derringer with bullets that are laced with snake venom, and he shoots Bond with it. 
Now Bond manages to kill Saramanga before collapsing into unconsciousness. But the other reason I want to bring this up is because we get a lot of flack, rightfully so in some points, for the Fleming novels. But when we think about colonialism, at the end of this novel, it ends in Bond's hospital bedroom. And, he's, and there's an investigation being taken on by the Jamaicans because now Jamaica's independent. And this is the, uh, not a colonial state anymore. It's an independent state. So Jamaican CID is doing the investigation with liaison from the CIA and MI6. So we're, we're seeing the, the, you know, the collapse of the British Empire here and these countries, the former colonies, starting to stand up on their own and do their own thing at the end of this, which, which maybe is fitting for the, the last James Bond novel, you know, written by Fleming. Uh, anyhow, it, I personally don't think James Bond is lawful evil. You know, well, I, I think a, the AD&D alignment system is a bad way to model <laughs> modern people, to be honest with you. But I'm curious on your thoughts on this. Where, where do you think OO agents fall under this? Where does James Bond fit in the alignment structure? How do you define these things? And I guess the other thing, if you think about this, go read the Blackmore supplement for OD&D. The original assassins weren't evil. The original assassin classes, Arneson looked at them, they were neutral because they were professionals. There was professionalism. It wasn't malice that they were killing people, right? So the, your, your original assassin class was actually neutral. That was the required alignment. It wasn't for them to be um, evil. That's something Gygax added in AD&D. But I'm curious on your thoughts. Are, is James Bond lawful evil? What D&D alignment do you think he is? Call in and let me know. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke put by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. Yo, Jason, I just wanted to let you know that your last episode, your last System Sunday about the uh, the RPG product, uh, what is it? The Plain and Honest land, Village of Sio was amazing, dude. I absolutely loved it. I can't remember the fellow's name because I'm terrible with names. It started with a G, <laughs> but... I, he just sold the crap out of it, man. It made it sound so much fun. I had to pick it up, and I was actually picking it off picking it up off of drive through RPG while still listening to your episode. And I, I bought it before I even heard you guys talking about the accessibility version that he released with it as well. And I was just, I was so happy to hear him talk about that and how it's, you know, it's, doesn't cost him anything to make it more accessible and it was just awesome man the fact that there is an accessible version i've got it loaded up onto my phone i've been listening to it and the one awesome thing is one of the many awesome things i should say is when it comes to accessibility in rpg books that have a lot of charts there are different levels and he knocked it out of the park because he has the charts set up just as lines at one 
you know, the first option, number one is a line, number two is a line. They're not in columns where it's like the first column is the numbers and the second column is the description of what that number means. It's all in one. So when your screen reader is reading it, it reads it all as one. And it's it makes it so, so much better because when when those charts are set up in columns in rows, the screen reader will read sometimes half of the column and it'll read like one, two, three, four, five, six, and then it'll start telling you what one, two, three, four, five, six are. And so it gets a little tricky, but this dude, he nailed it, knocked it out of the park. Awesome job. It's a fantastic supplement. So much fun. Uh, I, yeah, I, I really want to bring this to the table sometime because it just sounds so much. It's so cool, dude. As soon as I heard an ape playing tennis, I was like, I need to get it. I need to get it. <laughs> So thanks for sharing that, man. Uh, other folks out there, if you're interested, I highly recommend it. It's super fun. Anyway, dude, take it easy. Peace out. Of course, that was Joe of Hindsightless. Joe, thank you so much for the call. I really enjoyed talking to G. Edward Patterson, and I hope he'll join me again when he has new products that come out. And I do hope to get the Honest and Plain Village of Sio to the table at some point. Uh, it really is a great little sandbox village there, and I hope people check it out. So thank you for that call, and thanks for pointing out the accessibility part. He, I forwarded that to him, and it apparently is a, a happy byproduct how easily those tables read in the accessibility because he doesn't like nor the structure of normal tables. <laughs> so it's kind of a byproduct that it worked out so well, but he was really happy that it did, and... Yeah, so I'm looking forward to new new projects coming. Okay, let's go on to our next caller, which is BJ of the Arcane Alienist podcast. Hey, Jason, it's BJ. Um, <clears throat> happy Deception December. When you and Daniel were talking about, um, I think when you mentioned freelance agents, when you're talking about top secret, it made me think of the uh, the animated show Archer, which if you haven't watched that, you should check it out. It's It's obviously a silly animated comedy, but... The, the premise behind it, if you, if you factor out the comedy, well, or I guess you could keep it in there, really kind of works for that idea of having freelance spies because the, the idea is that there are these freelance spy agencies with their own, you know, like field agents and <laughs> accounting and HR departments and quartermasters and scientists and engineers that, that do everything you would see like in a James Bond movie or a Mission Impossible movie. But uh, they're just freelance agents. They get hired by the CIA. They get hired by the FBI. They get hired by K MI6 um, or sometimes by wealthy individuals or corporations. Um, so, so you get all the tropes of a, of a, of a, that we think of of spy or espionage movies. But it's got that flexibility in it to, to, to where, you know, you don't have to be an expert on CIA operations or you don't have to, you know, you, you can face a variety of different types of uh, missions, opponents, employers you know, payouts, things like that to, to build the agency. If you wanted to apply that in top secret. So I thought that was pretty cool, but you guys made me think of that. So yeah, definitely check out Archer if you never have before. The other thing you guys were talking about, <clears throat> you know, an, an unarmed fighting table that they had. Uh, I think you said it was, in, I can't remember if you said in top secret or was it in um, boot Hill or, or, or both where you don't get to pick your maneuver. You just roll on the table and it tells you whether you did a, a rabbit punch or, or a right hook or a paymaker or, or an uppercut or a, kick or whatever that actually was in second edition ad and d as you know they, they'd taken the monk out of ad and d second edition they didn't have monks barbarians or assassins as classes 
Um, but that uh, table or one very much like it made it into the second edition player's handbook is how to adjudicate unarmed combat uh, for second edition AD&D when it first came out. So I thought that was interesting to hear you guys talk about that. Anyway, enjoying all the, the spy stuff, this message will self-destruct in five seconds. As you can tell, unlike Joe's message, which was for episode 453 that came out on the 1st of January 2023, BJ's, I've sat on it for a little while, his was on an episode that came out on 12-18, on, I'm sorry, the 18th of December, uh, episode 447, where Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep podcast joined me to talk about Top Secret. And yeah, so that hand-to-hand combat system you're talking about was Boot Hill. And it's interesting that they adopted Boot Hill's version kind of over to second edition AD&D. I never played really second edition. Uh, Carl Rodriguez, the gemologist presents, ran a second edition game as a birthday game that I got to play in and Barry over at the um, Shadow of the Jam podcast ran a one shot for myself and Shandy Andy and and one of his kids, one of Barry's kids. And But that's my only experience is second edition. I never played it back in the day or owned it or any of that. Um, so that's interesting that that was that way. As far as Archer, I've seen a couple episodes of Archer. Um, and yeah, the freelance thing is interesting. I, I don't know, does freelance make it easier in the GM or harder on the GM? Because at least if, you, if everybody works for one agency, then you... I don't know. I, I can see it working either way, but it's but it's interesting that 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 is that model. Um, I I never you know I've watched like I say I've seen a couple episodes, never paid a whole lot of attention to Archer to be honest. But thank you so much for those calls. Really appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed all that content, and I hope to get in some more games with you here in the future, BJ. So take care of yourself, and let's move on to our next caller, who also featured last month. He was on the Christmas episode. This is Anthony of the Casting Shadows podcast, YouTube channel, blog. Although one of those, maybe the YouTube is Runeslinger. But anyway, I'm going to turn the mic over to him. Hey, Jason. It's Anthony here. Really, really enjoying today's episode on Smiley and the Jean Le novels. Really enjoying what James has to say about them and your interactions about them. And one of the points that uh, that really sticks out is the you know the authentic nature of the works because the author was actually in that <laughs> industry shall we say and this is one of the things that makes uh, the television show that i want to talk to you about sandbaggers uh cool also and that its author likewise worked in intelligence and had, you know, such a mysterious life and possibly death. Anyway, uh, back into the episode. Thank you for those kind words. That was a lot of fun to record that episode. That was episode 449 that came out on the 22nd December. And I had two guests on that one. James Knight, who you, you just referred to. James is a font of knowledge, a real super fan, and he... You know, I look forward to getting him on the show again in the future and also over on additional episodes of Cerebrivore. He appeared on the British Horror episode and brought a lot of knowledge to that as well. Uh, M.W. Lewis also, you know, he has his own podcast and he brought a lot of interesting insights. And we're going to hear more insights from him later in this episode. 
but Anthony has now finished listening and has some additional thoughts. So let's turn the mic back over to him. Hey, Jason. I got delayed getting to the end of the episode, but I finished it today. And you and I had talked about kind of like the, the every man who gets trapped in an espionage sort of situation. And MW brings up Bridge of Spies. Now, if you haven't seen Bridge of Spies, definitely watch it. Um, it's surprising. And it's very much this uh, poignant look at the time period. It's a, a, a deeply engrossing immersion into the Cold War and the sorts of things that these kind of everyman spies, not the action hero spy, but the emotional toll, toll that it takes and the, the drama and the, the real risks taken and you know, the, the value of your life when you are not the kind of frontline soldier, you know, that we expect in the movie to put their life on the line again and again and again. This is a regular guy, but in those same dangerous situations. So definitely one I recommend. Thanks, Anthony. And yeah, that every man getting sucked in the adventure or, you know, maybe they don't consider it the adventure, but sucked into this world, you know, that's common in movies and common in games. You know, and we talked about that a little bit in our episode on Christmas, but I, I do think it's a useful place for gaming because it's a good way to pull people in where their characters aren't so out of touch with them normally, where they're, you know, hard-bitten people that have all this training, but instead they're just average Joes and Janes who get sucked into the world and, and have to learn as they go. I, I think that's a really interesting way to start a campaign. And, and you know, things like Bridge of Spies or Three Days of the Condor kind of give us that feel um, you know, arguably also maybe like Spies Like Us, right? Um, Eric Salzweil's favorite movie. But anyhow, let's go on to our next caller. Thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate all those comments. I appreciate you taking the time out to join me so often on this show. Next caller is Daniel of Bandit's Keep. And Daniel's also very free with his time, which I appreciate. So let's hear what he has to say. Great conversation there with Spencer. Yeah, 39 Steps, such a good movie. I can't believe I've never seen it until this year when you mentioned it. So, uh, yeah, I think you mentioned it anyways ahead of time. Or maybe I just saw it because you were talking about uh, noirs. But in any case, uh, it was so good. Um, and then I, I right away I was like, oh, this is like North by Northwest. And the novel seems super interesting and also the 1970s movie. I, I think it would be cool to see it right set in another time period. You know, a lot of times with movies – People will bring them forward to this time period, just so the time period they're in, obviously, uh, you know, to maybe make it more relatable. But there's something great about a good kind of uh, historical uh, movie, if it's done well, anyways, just to see like these little weird kind of flashes of what it was like. You know, like how Spencer mentioned the idea of like automobiles and horses, like mixing together. <laughs> so interesting. There was a, um, a Matahari movie that was kind of like that, which was, you know, beginning of World War One. You know, it showed basically like tanks mixed in with like horse-drawn carriages. It was just such an interesting mix. So a uh, great episode, and I'll talk to you soon. Daniel, thank you for that. I had a lot of fun talking with Spencer about The 39 Steps. The 39 Steps is just such a great movie. I'm talking about the 1935 Hitchcock. And I am kind of interested to go check the novel out like you are. Um, it, it's out there. It's easy enough to find. 
as well as the other versions of the movie. So I'd recommend people check those out. Um, and let's go on to our next caller, which is M.W., the world's M.W. Lewis. So let's see what he has to say. Hey, Jason. I just listened to uh, your latest episode, which uh, featured uh, M.W., that's me, calling in, and James um, from, I guess, he's, Grog, he's on the Grog Talk Discord. I, don't, I forget if he said he has a podcast, so I apologize to him. Um, early in the morning here. It's early in the morning. I just had a big fight with my son to get him to school today. So I'm barely, uh, I'm barely, barely lucid. So, um, but listening to my portion, I have to say, I apologize. I think there were several points near the end when you're like, okay, I want to wrap this up. And then I just continued talking. But I do think the conversation was interesting. So, I'm calling because, I don't know, am I getting old? Am I getting uh, dementia? Or am I just too busy? Have I cluttered my mind with so many various things that I just on the spot have trouble recalling information? I, I don't know. That's that's a question for my doctors, not for you, Jason. But if you have the answer, then I, you'll save me a trip to the doctor. So let me know. Do, do I do I can't remember things? Is it having a teenager? Um, you know, working, running Dungeons and Dragons games, writing. Maybe I'm just too spread. Am I spreading out too thin? Am I like a? Do I feel like butter being spread thinly on a piece of toast, like Bilbo Baggins, or do I have dementia and I'm just going to lose my mind in five years? So I like to know, Jason, if you have the answers. I do not have an answer, but if your doctor has any recommendations, I would love to hear them. Because I suffer from the same ailment. But I'm calling to set the record straight on a few things. And, you know, it is really amazing to me that I could not remember this one thing. Because I wrote about this in, in college. And this is what I part of what I why I studied Russian history, which I mentioned in politics. It was really Russian politics. I, I actually, actually am not like a big fan of Russia for any reason. I actually am a big fan of democracy and um, the Enlightenment and classical liberalism and John Locke and uh, the movements of peoples from the ancient regime or their uh, regimes that are not enlightened to enlightened regimes. And I so naturally in, in the 90s, studying Russia was the way to go. And uh, I wish, you know, I should have pursued it. And I didn't for many reasons. But I had written a lot about Hannah Arendt. And uh, what I was trying to say is, if if you want to know what real espionage was like, you got to understand the banality of evil. That's what I meant to say. Banal. You know, real spies were nothing special. Anyway, I don't want to beat the dead horse there. Everybody can listen to the podcast. What I, what I, what I was trying to refer to there was the banality of evil. Uh, and that's how spies are, too. And they're not evil, but I would say it's just the banality of spies. There, there's nothing special about them. Well, they are special, though, but there's nothing, you know, out of the order. They're not superheroes. The other thing I was trying to refer to, in case anyone's wondering, is the show called Vietnam, a television history by WGBH Public Television. So I, I said it might have been 60 Minutes. Uh, and they interviewed Frank Snepp, a former chief analyst of North Vietnamese strategy for the CIA in Saigon. And I might be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe handlers aren't in the room. 
Uh, maybe they were cutting to load more tape. But I think if you watch the video, you can. I think you can tell there are handlers there. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but um, he. It did take a long time before he could speak about his experience in Saigon and why he felt like uh, it all fell apart at the end, or the mistakes the U.S. government made that uh, facilitated it falling. So that's it. Just setting the record straight on those two aspects in case anyone was interested to know what the heck this crazy MW was talking about. That is what I was talking about. And uh, great show, Jason. And thanks again for having me on. AMW, thank you for that. You, you know, my thoughts when you mentioned that went back to an old ethics presentation. Um, this is done by the Annenberg Foundation. You can get the video. You can actually watch them all online. I'll put a link in the show notes. They did a series of ethics. These are 10 videos where they got panels. And they and it's really interesting because it's a mixture, right? So you had like Mike Wallace and Peter Jennings and Westmoreland. And, and two of these were like military orders under fire. And, and then they also talked about medical ethics and business ethics and things like that. And it, just really interesting stuff and really interesting um prominent people on these panels and and they're there you can watch these on on tv they're you know uh, anthony scalia's on there supreme court justice uh we get just a number of very interesting people on these um talking about different things but the especially the the two orders under fire the you know panel six and seven are are kind of interesting um and i would recommend those so now we're going to move on to calls from brian from have to look that up. And a couple of these he re-recorded. So he's going to talk about wind in one of these recordings. And the wind was so bad because he was recording while he was walking that he had to re-record and send it back. So he mentions about how the wind might be really bad, but it, you don't hear any wind. That's why, because he actually had to re-record them because they were kind of unlistenable. But I'm going to turn the mic over to him. Hey, Jason, it's Brian. I know it's been a while since I've, I've called in, but I am still listening. Uh, it's hard to keep up with you, man. You put out episodes almost daily, but I really enjoyed the conversation you had with Che on Mission Impossible and Spycraft. In fact, I, I do like this uh, recent string of espionage games. They probably don't get as much love as some of the other genres, but uh, I enjoy them. But so specifically on Mission Impossible, I put some comments on the on the Roleplay Rescue Discord, but wanted to give them to you because I think you guys hit on some great points about the series. First of all, I, I have come to really love the overall series. I liked the first two, probably even the third movie, definitely the first two movies. And, and for some of the reasons you said, it started as kind of a, a team of agents and then there was some double crossing and just a lot of things going on, a very, very convoluted plot in, in a good way to me. Um, so I, I remember the early movies, kind of 96 and then 2000. And I know there was a gap, but I, I got back into the more recent ones probably well after theatrical release. And I've been really surprised and impressed, and this is something I believe you guys hit, is that the plot lines, they've kept them very current. You know, they've, they've updated them. Um, I think there's still a good amount of kind of, of, of a serious tone of the stakes, but obviously the action sequences and a bit of, bit of camp, you know, high stunts, especially for Tom. So I, I think it's a good mix. And, and to be honest, I think the last couple have gotten better because both of those 
elements of the storylines, the main cast characters, but the characters they introduce. Oh, gosh, especially uh, Angela Bassett as the uh, CIA director. That's who I would want. But the biggest thing for me, and I don't know if others really pick up on this, but I've appreciated it. I mean, obviously, Tom Cruise, no question, he carries the franchise and is known for doing his own stunts, and they get more and more spectacular. And although I, I appreciate them, I like how the last few movies have been a little bit more grounded in the fact that he is now an aging spy. And in particular, so in the most recent movie, here's where spoilers come in. Okay, these spoilers are kind of like spoilers you'd see in a trailer. They don't really ruin the movie. So don't if you haven't seen the latest Mission Impossible, it's not going to really ruin anything. Although I will tell you one spoiler here for the DC movies. Brian keeps referring to Henry Cavill's Superman, and sadly, Henry Cavill is no longer Superman in that series. So with that sad bit of news, I will turn you back over to him talking about Mission Impossible. Okay, spoilers. Uh, so a couple of, of instances. One, the fight that he had in that um, strange nightclub scene in the bathroom um, you know, with Superman, Henry Cavill, you know, at his side trying to fight uh, you know, one of the bad guys. There were just a few minutes when it looked like Tom had to kind of stop and reassess just just how how to fight, how the two of them could do this. I mean, obviously, you know, Superman is 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 more than strong enough on his own, but it's just kind of the look on on how Tom, what I imagined was just things having to go through his head and trying to be a little bit more strategic as you know, an, an older accomplished spy with a lot of muscle help still trying to, you know, accomplish their task in this, you know, you know bathroom fight with, with pretty much pretty well choreographed uh, martial arts. So, you know, that's, that's the first thing. It's just a bit different than a normal kind of action hero, you know, even the aging ones rough everyone up. The, my favorite part, though, was the chase that he is doing, and I think it's when they're back in London. I could have the cities wrong. And Simon Pegg is giving him the, the directions via kind of his GPS or, you know, his, his view and tracking where everybody is. And as Tom has been racing through and fighting and, and going through, he goes through that office building and it's like everybody's staring at him because Tom is breathless and yelling into his, you know, his earpiece. And Simon's directing where to go. And so eventually he has to like get on some desks and is literally getting ready to obviously jump out the window. And there's that pause and he's just waiting and Simon is saying, well, what, what, what happened? What, what are you doing? Why, you know, why are you waiting? Paraphrasing. And Tom just screams, I'm going to jump out a window. And it's just, it's that kind of stuff that I think like, yes, Tom does all these incredible stunts, but every little thing that does that, like, so literally, you know, whereas before, or maybe in a lot of, maybe even, you know, lower rated action movies that would just be like, without a blank, they'd do it. It's that little bit. And I don't know if it's, if it's meta or intended for us, but I, I really appreciate it. And to me, even with all the stunts, to see that, that he's like, oh, man, how am I going to get through this day? I got, I got to jump out this window. It just, it just with everything else, it, it just, I don't know, it adds something to me that, it, like I said, I'm, I'm now a big fan. And for the, the next two coming out, uh, I'm looking forward to them. So anyway, but a lot of the points you guys hit on, um, I think they provide a lot of great grain material. Cheers, guys. Hey, Brian, I agree with you. The Mission Impossible movies are a lot of fun. And Tom Cruise, you know, as he gets older, does help pull it off by, 
you, you know, showing he's out of breath and all that, unlike you have 70-year-old or whatever old he is, Sylvester Stallone just powering through things in the later Rambo movies without showing it at all, where, you know, at least Tom Cruise is showing, you know, that he's getting a little bit older. Kind of like the, the Danny Glover, I'm, I'm getting too old for this shit, in Lethal Weapon. But Brian's got a little bit more to say, so let's go on. And to if, if I didn't mention it already, you, you know, Che Webster, when he appeared on the show or in December, and we were talking about Mission Impossible, he his point about Mission Impossible being a great blueprint for running a larger group of players through a spy RPG is just dead on. Uh, they're, they're a great way to, to look at those and think about how to do larger groups in espionage games. Hey, Jason, it's Brian. It's a little bit less windy. I'm still out on the trails, but hopefully this was better. I think my last set of comments had quite a bit of wind. But anyway, I had few thoughts based on the conversation you guys were having on Top Secret. Um, but first, I just wanted to make sure to wish you a Merry Christmas. I think I am finally close enough to the U.S. time zones. Now I'm only two hours ahead, so we're actually uh, set for Christmas on the same day. It actually is going to make calling my family back in uh, the eastern U.S. Uh, a bit easier. So anyway, Merry Christmas to you, all your listeners, everyone in the community, to your family. And a big thank you. Um, I haven't called in as much as uh, I wanted to. At some point, we'll get back online and maybe game. But you continue to put out podcasts, episodes, call-ins, tie-overs, tie-ins, etc., <laughs> crossovers, cerebral uh, like like a madman. I do not know how you do it. Uh, it seems that you are gaming a lot, putting out podcasts. I know you work a lot. I know you spend time with your family. Uh, it's crazy. I think it is the army in you, and that is meant with all due respect, sir. So, yeah, so from a, a, a consumer of content uh, and someone out here listening, and then hopefully we'll get online and, uh, and game and, and chat soon, uh, thank you for doing that. And uh, I'll put the top secret comments in a, a separate uh, file to send you. Cheers, man. Thank you for that. Yeah, I may cut back slightly on my output going forward. We'll see. Due to the changes that Spotify have enforced on Anchor, we have been getting less calls. Or maybe I'm chasing people away, one of the two. But with, with the drop in the number of calls, there's a less a need to put out as many episodes, I think. But we're going to play it by ear. Hopefully, maybe the call volume will go back up, and I'll have to do more episodes again. Who knows? But I'm going to turn the mic back over to Brian. Aloha, Jason. It's Brian again. And wanted to give you my thoughts on the top secret discussion that you guys had. And I think it, what did it total, about an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes, hour and 20, something like that. But it for a listener and lover of the original top secret, the, the first editions that Merle had put out, um, yeah, it was great. It was great listening to you guys trip through the rule book and discuss it. And a few things that, that I remember and that you prompted me. One, this was a, a game that a few of us started playing in our middle school days. And it was kind of one that we were, we were playing Star Frontiers a lot more than anything else. And we had also started playing Marvel. And it started to appeal to us because for whatever reason... It wasn't, it wasn't quite the, the James Bond renaissance, I don't think. I mean, it was, what, this is mid-'80s, so it was kind of before the 
uh, you know, the brief couple of Timothy Dalton films, you know, the end of, of Roger Moore. But I think for some reason we just there was a there must have been a general vibe that we liked about spies and espionage. And I guess, you know, for me personally, getting more curious about places in the world. So it introduced, you know, the, the real world, but obviously with a, an espionage, a uh, little bit of a cinematic view, if you wanted bent to it. And I think you guys hit on this, the fact that you can play it with just a few players and even seem to be designed for that. Uh, we hit on that because we did not have very large gaming groups. So I know we enjoyed that. The other thing is, which is weird to say, but it seemed to be a little bit more grown up. So, I mean, although we'd played D&D and Star Frontiers with Marvel, I, you know, we were probably at that age where although we were kids, we were starting to feel maybe that. Uh, just like maybe we all used to look back at, not all of us, but some of us, ba- basic D&D as Kitty and wanting advanced. Top Secret seemed to be a step up, a step up, you know, m- more serious in a way, although obviously looking back, uh, you know, I recognize it's not. So I think for us, maybe we took it a little more seriously or you, you felt that, at least I know I did. I know when I planned uh, some kind of adventures, they were follow-ons to the first module that came in the box you know i I spent time and this is uh, pre-internet or at least really pre pre pre-wide scale you know internet and world wide web but spent time with the books and uh you know even a little bit at the library uh looking a little bit more into some places and cities and 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 events that had happened to try to use for inspiration so i'm not i'm not sure why that kind of stuck with me but it it stuck with me as kind of a neat part of the game it's kind of rooted in the real world but obviously, you can take it run with it however you want. And especially now, um, I guess the last uh, set of comments, and I would love to hear if you end up doing an episode on the New World Order. I was pretty excited when this came out and got on the Kickstarter. It was kind of when I was first getting back into gaming. So it was just, it, it was neat to see something come out with a bit of an update, you know, new system that we did. But to be honest, haven't really done much with it, played it once online. Um, would like to play it more. It just, again, with everything else going on and, and then the, the onslaught of games that we've seen, um, you know, it sadly has kind of fallen to the back. But definitely interested in it as I think it had some, some neat mechanics. And I think one of the other things, this is uh, one of the guys that I played with had kind of stressed on this, is it lends itself to very potentially easy prep because you can literally look everything up and then pull from just real world Google Maps, you know, and other documents to kind of help help guide you for settings and whatnot. And then, you know, obviously using that as a layer, take it in any direction you want and invent anything. But I know when we talked about that, it was just a connection that, you know, with the, the, the amount of, of online gaming and, and the tools we use, um, it just kind of struck me as well. To make a game that would seem like it would take a lot of prep, just way easier is that, you know, there's just a wealth of resources you can pull out and milk. And obviously it applies to other other games, but it's just neat to do that with this or, or some of the other that may be set in, I guess, either either modern day or at least pulls from what we know about Earth and then you can spin to it what you will. But yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So uh, I will have to get more active in the new year when I get back home and get a, a stable work schedule hopefully for the year and uh, look for some opportunities to, to do uh, some top secret gaming. Cheers.
And remember, folks, if you sent a call in to Jason and you haven't heard it on this episode, have no fear. It will appear. Hey, Brian, thank you for that. You know, New World Order, Top Secret New World Order is one I have. I've never played it. I need to read it in more detail. I'd be interested in trying it. It Because I've never played it, it's a new game. It doesn't really reach out to me that much, to be honest. I'm much more interested now in Top Secret SI. I'm still a huge fan of the original. I'll play the original Drop of the Hat. But SI, with some of the more innovative mechanics in there, you know, and, and they're not unique to it, but, but things like the shot, the damage, and the body part hit being incorporated in the to roll, or the, you know, the hit roll is interesting. Um, the, now that's for hand-to-hand. If you're using a weapon, then you only do the location hit out of the two-hit roll. But still, it, there's some interesting things in Top Secret SI, and I am looking forward to getting that in the, on the table sometime this year. But New World Order is something I'm interested in, and we'll have to give that a shot. Of course, there are other a bunch of other espionage games out there that are also interesting, and maybe we'll get some of that into the table. I am also really interested in this idea that Anthony and I talked about at the end of the Christmas episode of doing a troop-style espionage game where you have characters back at the office that are handlers, and then you have operatives out in the field doing the actual work and because it's troop style you'd be able to switch back and forth between your handler in the office who's dealing with office politics and maybe you know moles in the office things like that whatever kind of complications you have there and then you have the actual operators kicking down the doors out in the field dealing with the problems they have out there and you're switching back and forth between the characters and and you don't necessarily have to switch during each session you might do a session with the operators and a session back to the office or you might flop back and forth during the game i don't know but i'm really interested in exploring that concept as well so lots of neat things to do in espionage games lots of neat way neat ways to approach them i want to thank everybody for all their calls i know i waited to get them all out here so this is a long episode i apologize for that i look forward to what people think about in regards to james bond alignment and the idea of you know, are all operatives actually lawful evil and assassins? Or is it different if you're working for a government? And especially is it different if you're working for a free government compared to, say, a, you know, a, a red communist government, right? I appreciate all you listeners for taking the time to listen. I really appreciate Ray Otis with the Coffee Cup Clip Art, even though I'm not using it today. And I really appreciate TJ Drennan for all the music. I look forward to talking to everybody soon. I'll be back on Sunday with the System Sunday. So just remember, you don't have to follow all the people raging about what Watsi's doing with D&D in, in the news, in the media. It's okay to take a break from social media. It's okay to take a breath, lower your blood pressure, not get embroiled in Tempest in a Teapot where people are trying to get clicks because that's what they have to do to monetize their YouTube channels. So and just enjoy playing the games you enjoy. Enjoy playing with the groups that you enjoy playing with. And most importantly, be excellent to one another.
maybe it's your auntie or a joker by your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could shoot him dead. Bring on the glow, bring on the glow. I want some more, bring on the glow. Well, the butcher is a dustbin and your moil is by a tipper, and I'm assuming that's your partner back there in the wood chipper. Don't look away. Zombies are rising and the world is gone to hell. We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck.